Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Darsh Shah. And I'm Dr. Altamash Raja. And welcome to Medicine Redefined, a podcast where we will explore the often overlooked but necessary components of health, what we consider to be the fundamentals. We will investigate topics and practices that can give you and your patients the best chance to optimize a healthy lifestyle. It's time to move the needle forward and put the health back in healthcare. It's a month into 2021. You are finally ready to commit to this year being better than the last, but you're still spending your evenings catching up on notes when you could be leaving work with a clean slate. On Time MD teaches physicians critical time management strategies tailored specifically for the unique demands physicians face. Strategies cover the exam room, inbox and EHR, meetings, and more. Popular module How to Delegate Without Dumping addresses how to delegate tasks to your staff in a way that doesn't make them feel dumped on but inspires them to do their best work. Course creator Phil Boucher, pediatrician and podcaster, wants you to join other physicians who understand the value of their time but are struggling to make a clear and executable plan for action. Join today and save 15% by using the code 2021 at checkout. You also get a money-back guarantee if you don't reclaim three hours a week in the first two months. Now is your chance to join OnTimeMD and reclaim your time for good. Go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash OnTimeMD to get started. Our guest today is E.C. Sinkowski. E.C. is the owner of Optimize Me Nutrition, a company with a mission of providing solutions for anyone to improve their health and well-being through sustainable dietary methods. Her 800-gram challenge has gained a tremendous amount of attention, and for good reason, because it's truly an elegant solution to a lot of the confusion around nutrition in today's day and age. EC's academic background includes a bachelor's in biochemical engineering, a master's in environmental sciences, and a second master's in nutrition and functional medicine. More importantly, over the past decade, EC has been at the forefront of providing quality nutritional education by translating the evidence-based scientific data into practical solutions for everyday success. Her podcast, The Consistency Project, is one of my favorite shows to listen to because she provides valuable, digestible insights on the complexities of nutrition. Darsh and I had a great discussion with EC in this episode. We touched on some key points, including the opportunity cost of poor nutrition and why we spend so much time and energy addressing this component of health. We talk about the quality versus quantity debate, if one is more important. We, of course, get into her 800-gram challenge, lazy macros, but largely her focus on principles of nutrition rather than any one specific diet. And most importantly, we talk about how to implement and influence change on a global level. We had a ton of fun interviewing EC and learning from her, but by the end of this, I had twice as many questions as going in. Unfortunately, though, due to time limitations, we were not able to continue this interview. I suspect, though, that this won't be the last time we have a conversation. Now, without further delay, please enjoy this episode with EC Sinkowski. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another beautiful morning here. Uh, we have none other than EC Sinkowski. So EC, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me and Alt. Um, if you could just tell the listeners who you are, you know, some of them may have seen your YouTube, some of them may have seen your Instagram. Um, but can you go ahead and just let us know who you are? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on, first of all. And yeah, I'm E.C. Sinkowski. I'm the founder and owner of Optimize Me Nutrition, where I offer B2B and B2C products to help people get sorted in nutrition. Um, And yeah, I think people might know me, if anything, from the 800 gram challenge. It's sort of my lead in product. It's really I'm whether or not it's the 800 gram challenge or any of my products. I just want people to find something that's sustainable for them that actually works for nutrition. Awesome. Yeah, you see, I, 
Thank you. I like Darsha. Thank you for coming on. I've been so pumped for this conversation. I think the first time I heard you was on the ready state. Um, and just your message really resonated with me. And then immediately after that, I, I kind of went to Apple podcast, downloaded the consistency project and kind of just binged through all of those. I, I think I mentioned how, how much I enjoyed that content. And so I've wanted to get you on here for such a long time especially after our, our recent interaction um, and just a bit, bit of background for, for you and our listeners. You know, I've repeatedly said that nutrition, when it comes to nutritional science, quality tends to be the most important thing. Um, and, you know, we recently had Dr. Arndt on here. Uh, he's one of my mentors. And we talked a lot about nutritional timing. And I think we can all agree that that's probably the least important variable when it comes to quality, quantity, and timing. Uh, but that's one of the ones that we get the most questions about. People talk about intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, you know, peri-workout nutrition, those types of things. So we wanted to address those questions first. But uh, last week when I asked you to come on and I mentioned that quality was the most important thing, you politely disagreed. <laughs> and so I've been uh, anxiously waiting to kind of, you know, ask what you meant about that. So I think that's probably best place to start. So, yeah, yeah, I, you know, quality and quantity are important and they often are related. And, and even with timing, timing is often related to quantity. So I think some of our confusion, we keep running around on like which one is best when it's like, if we just used the word and, <laughs> we'd be better off, right? Like instead of trying to worry about the one thing, let's go ahead and use that word and, and then we're going to get there. Um, but yeah, quality is not necessarily more important than quantity. In fact, I just, I've worked with many people, but just had a recent interaction with one of my clients and guess what? She was overdoing it on the whole quality foods, the olive oil and the homemade bread and all of the high, you know, organic, locally sourced, whatever. Um, so you can still eat too much. Quantity certainly is a factor for health. And we find that all the time that people losing just even five, 10 pounds and their health markers dramatically improve. I don't think they're anywhere near the 800 gram challenge or a lazy macros approach, but yet we've improved their health markers. And this is simply because there's just less stress on their metabolic health, right? Like their blood glucose is coming down, the triglycerides are coming down, cholesterol is coming down, and it doesn't have to be with this paleo perfect approach. And, and that's why I don't try to get too dogmatic about nutrition that, you know, simple changes, even in just quantity, even if it's less McDonald's, we've got some good changes to make, and it can be really significant in terms of their overall health picture. Now, why I attack it from the quality perspective is, is that we kind of can kill two birds with one stone, right? Like when we focus on quality, quantity tends to come down. And so this is where those factors tend to be related. But if I've got someone and, and they want to do McDonald's, great. I'm running with McDonald's and we can get there. We can get to some better outcomes as well. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, speaking about that, our listeners are probably going to be hearing this episode in, in, in January, right? 2021. A lot of people are going to be starting diets, fad diets. Maybe it's paleo. Maybe it's veganuary. Maybe it's carnivore. <laughs> um, and a lot of people are either going to be struggling with it or they're going to be doing well. But can you just explain why so many diets fail? And I know you love puns. So how can we fuel, you know, the drive and passion for people to keep it going? Yeah, I do love diet puns when I can work them in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> why do diets fail? Yeah, I mean, I, there, there's a lot of different reasons, but I, I think people think there's this one new magic answer or there's one thing, you know, this one extreme way to do it and they're going to find the best way. And, and for some reason, we just keep overshooting like the balanced approach. You know, it's like, so one of my clients just said this, and I just love the way that she phrased it. It was like, 
for some reason, you keep thinking that the more extreme approach is going to outperform the basics that you've been taught forever. <laughs> and so, like, we just keep staying on the outer circle. If we just sort of like calm down a little bit and took a balanced approach, we're actually going to get the results in a more sustainable way. So, I don't know. I think people typically fail diets because they overshoot. They want this extreme approach. They think they're going to get these results. They think that there's something unknown. And it's like, no, guys, we, we know what works. And like, I don't know if it's just not sexy enough. I, I don't know what the problem is, but we just gotta, like keep going past it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, going on your Instagram, looking at your stories now, just in the last couple of days, you're kind of tracking this 800 gram challenge that you started. Can you take us through that? What is the 800 gram challenge for people that don't, that for those that don't know about it? Sure. Yeah. The 800 gram challenge is to eat 800 grams by weight of fruits and veggies each day, and then you continue to eat whatever else you want, right? So this is one of the big reasons why it's different than so many other diets is because you're just focusing on addition. You're not focusing on elimination. You're adding fruits and veggies to the diet. And of course, that's not all you eat either. Like people are like, is that all I eat? No, no, no. You eat whatever else you want in addition to those 800 grams. You also get to pick which fruits and veggies you want. If you want to do it on all fruit, great. You want to do it on all veggies, paleo perfect, low carb, whatever, great. You just pick the fruits and veggies you want. It also doesn't matter if they're cooked, canned, frozen, or fresh. So we're not worrying about locally sourced, organically grown, whatever, kale. You're, you're just having as, as you have it. You get to that 800 grams and that's it. And um, that's the basic premise of the challenge. And to me, it's just a really sustainable way to kind of check yourself on quality. Um, it it kind of came up as this idea of how do I put a metric on quality? How do I know when I'm eating a high quality diet, because you could say like, well, I eat a lot of fruits and veggies, but what's the metric? What's the standard? And, and so this is really how that idea came to be. Yeah. Is there, is there a reason you choose 800 grams, like rather than a thousand or 600? Was there like a research study that's based off of, or does it just kind of? No, fit? for sure. Th there was, I was actually playing with a couple different diet ideas at the time. I was, this was when I was in my master's for nutrition and functional medicine. And I was playing with a couple different quality focused diet ideas at the time that I happened to come across this study by Un et al., I hope I'm saying it right, it's A-U-N-E, um, in the International Journal of Epidemiology in 2017. And they were looking at health risk reduction relative to fruit and vegetable consumption. Okay, so they're looking, they actually did a meta-analysis of 95 different studies. They pulled in all this data and said, okay, when people eat this many fruits and vegetables, what happens to their health outcomes? And of course, they found that 800 grams was a significant number. Um, cancer risk actually went down at 600 grams, but then stroke, uh, all-cause mortality, um, cardiovascular disease risk went down to 800 grams. And so with this idea of like, you know, how do I make this into a diet while reading this paper? I was like, that's it. That's a really interesting idea. But then of course, especially for our US-based audience, it's like, well, what's 800 grams? Like, what does that look like? And, and what does that mean in terms of calories and macronutrients? And what are the rules going to be? Like, are beans allowed? Because like, for example, they didn't include beans in their study. And like, am I allowing them? What about tofu? What about, you know, all these questions. So, so that's really then where I kind of started playing with it. And I played with the idea, kind of tracking it myself, doing it myself, um, taking data on it, putting rules around it for about six months before I was like, yeah, I like this. And then so kind of publicly launched it as a, as a diet idea um, in 2018. Yeah, you see, this has definitely been one of my favorite things, and and I'm doing it myself actually. And so I guess I'm we're going to talk a little bit more, hopefully, about lazy macros. That's more of the approach that I'm taking. But um, you know, just to kind of going back about the quality versus quantity debate, and just after I talked to you, uh, of course, because I'm Type A and, and impatient, I went kind of went back and just double speeded through some of your podcasts again. And the thing that I took away from it is, um, you know, I had 
personally, this own bias that quality tends to be the most important thing. Of course, you know, once I got into medicine, we're looking at health and, and longevity and those types of things. Um, whereas when you're looking at calories in versus calories out, you, you tend to focus a lot more on quantity too. But with this 800 gram challenge, like you mentioned, when people tend to consume a lot of vegetables, the volume, like, and you've done this over the last couple of days, you know, what 800 grams is sometimes anywhere from 300 to 500 calories. And so you're kind of really taking both of those. I mean, you're killing two birds with one stone, but also how we tend to kind of have our own biases and confirmation bias. And when I went back and listened to your podcast, that wasn't really your message. You weren't emphasizing quality or quantity. You were kind of saying both are important. But mm-hmm. I had this all my own notion and I was like, okay, that's what EC is saying. EC agrees with me and therefore I am right. And so I think that's really important for us to understand, particularly as clinicians, as we go through this literature um, and we're trying to fish stuff out, are we only looking for things that support what we already believe versus um, I think at some point you mentioned that somebody said to you, hey, like, you know, you can find any type of research article to support something. And you were like, hey, isn't that crazy? Because uh, that means more than one thing works. And it goes back to the whole idea of, hey, let's use the word and not right. necessarily either or. So I, I want to thank you for that. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, I, I felt humbled after that. Um, but in terms of the research uh, study that you you talked about uh, in the Journal of Epidemiology, I did go through that. And, and that was going to be my question for you. Hey, like, you know, b- the beans weren't included. And when you look in the fitness space, I know you work with a lot of CrossFitters and those uh, potatoes, beans, these are starch stuff. We te- mm-hmm. te- we look at them as carbs. Why include those? Uh, why not just include the fibrous vegetables? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, d- I don't think the literature on potatoes and beans is that problematic. You know, we find that when people have beans in their diet or when people have potatoes as potatoes, not um, French fries from McDonald's, um, we, we find that they're pr- probably eating healthier diets overall. And so, yeah, it was just sort of like, let's include things. Let's make this even more flexible. Like no one's overeating black beans. I mean, maybe someone's overeating air fried white potatoes, but like, okay, let's stick to reality. Like not everyone's going to eat 800 grams of that every single day. And if they are, it's probably better than their current diet. So I think a lot of nutrition, you have to kind of realize that um, there's a lot of trade-offs. Like you have to meet people where there are and find some level of buy-in and and not everybody wants to do 800 grams of kale. And guess what? They don't have to either. So how do I get buy-in? How do I get interest? How do I make this sustainable? And the more choices that you give people, the more likely it's going to happen. And then of course, I mean, we could go down the rabbit hole of like the nutrients that are in beans and potatoes, resistant starch, of course, you know, and and all the phytochemicals in the beans and all the different fiber types. And there's some value there. So it's like, I think they've been maligned and, and people like our obesity epidemic is not because of the white potato. Like it's just not, <laughs> at least not the white potato oven roasted at home. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I love that. And, and so when we're talking about, you know, all these nutrient dense foods, um, and particularly the vegetables, right. The, the fibrous vegetables, the carrots and all the fruits and things that you've been posting about, what do you think the the mechanism is, right? Um, Did they discuss that in that paper at all? Is it kind of just, hey, you're consuming less volume and, uh, you know, you have more quality consumption, which is going to equate to weight loss and therefore better health? Or is it, hey, all the polyphenols and carotenoids and, you know, the antioxidative benefits that might have, which may improve vascular and endothelial dysfunction? Um, Or is it just, hey, simply reducing sodium and increase in fiber and increase in potassium because of fruit. Like, do you, do you think there's one or is it 
again, and multiple and, things. And, yeah. and, and of course, there's going to be genetics come into play. Like some of us are going to be more risk uh, or more have more risk associated with endothelial dysfunction, right? And then some of us are going to need more antioxidant capacity or, or whatever the permutation of that is. You're going to remember more about the paper than I have because I haven't looked at it probably in the last year or so. Um, but I do remember that they were trying to look and see which of the fruits and vegetables were more associated with less risk uh, or more risk than others. I think they were trying to group like do berries and apples or something like that, like have a better health outcome than others. And I, I don't totally remember their, their finding there. But that's where there's a difference between what you're doing at the research level and like, okay, now I'm going and working with real people. <laughs> like, I don't care if the study found that only blueberries were the best fruit out there. Like, let me tell you how many days someone's going to stick on the all blueberry diet. It's not many. Okay. So, you know, this is where we can't get too lost in, you know, what exactly does the research say versus what kind of outcome actually changes something clinically. And, and so that's where I'd have to go back and look and see exactly what their conclusions were there. But that's where I kind of added my my experience with working with people and, and just living it myself, right? Like I, I started, I made up rules that I thought were valuable that weren't necessarily part of the study. Yeah, no. And so since then, though, like uh, I know you said you hadn't seen that paper in quite some time. Have you come across other meta-analyses? Because um, I know that what was interesting, at least in that paper, because again, because I recently looked at it, is they quantified, they said, hey, 80 grams is one serving and therefore 10 servings is kind of what 800 gram equates to, right? Um, so just I was on uh, looking at on PubMed seeing, hey, well, what else has been out there? And I recently came across this paper in, in 2020. It was a meta-analysis and nutrition reviews. And they essentially wanted to look at fruits and veggies and improving cardiovascular risk factors. Mm -hmm. And in this paper, interestingly, they said that, hey, greater than three servings of fruits and vegetables lowered diastolic blood pressure, um, some of the uh, lipid parameters like triglycerides specifically. Um, so what was interesting is 800 grams, just 10 servings, and, and just as little as three servings. So I thought that, hey, is the, do you think that this standard American diet, we're not even getting three servings of vegetables. Do you have any sense of where we are? Like, obviously, I think we're doing a lot better today than we were maybe even 10 years ago. But do you think that this the average American on this sad diet, if you will, is even taking three servings a day? I think you're on to something. I mean, according to the USDA, 80% of people aren't getting enough fruits and veggies. Now, where their recommendation falls out to the 800 gram challenge, the 800 gram challenge can match theirs. Their, their system's a little bit confusing, which is why I made up something else. But I would say that their recommendations fall closer to the 600 gram level on average. Um, and they say that 80% of people aren't getting enough fruits and veggies. So yeah, <laughs> like, I don't think I think the standard American diet maybe has 200 grams, and it's going to be from white potato or corn or something like that. So yeah, we have a lot of work to do. And that's why just even small changes. And this is why we can't be so obsessed with having the perfect paleo diet, because like, we don't need, you know, the perfect diet to have some some great outcomes, for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so again, uh, for, for those of us who are very much interested in performance, as you mentioned, um, you know, we got vegetables in there, we'll have some fats. I'm sure that people will try to find a way to sneak them in. But again, <laughs> what about protein? Yeah, uh, So this is where lazy macros come in, as I understand it correctly. So you want to talk a little bit about that, what, what that means exactly, and how you came up with that concept? 
For sure. So yeah, I used to work for CrossFit. Um, that's kind of my tribe, right? Like I've done CrossFit since 2006. I have a lot of people that are interested in fitness around me. So when I came out with the 800 gram challenge, a lot of CrossFitters were like, this is cool. What about protein? Right. Like, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know. I just haven't figured out how I want to solve that problem yet. And so lazy macros was ultimately the answer to that. And lazy macros is just, you're continuing to do the 800 gram challenge. And then in addition to that, you're going to now add this protein target. And the protein target that I put out there, like the 800 gram number is um, 0.7 grams per pound of body weight. It's generally of your current weight, but if you have a significant amount of weight to lose, more likely you're going to go with your target weight. But the idea is the same. You're just sort of hitting this baseline number and then you continue to eat whatever else you want. So you eat the fruits and veggies, you hit the protein target, then yes, you can still have the wine, the dark chocolate or whatever. Um, and, and that number is really from a whole different bunch of sources. But for my athletic population, it's where we find people put on muscle mass from resistance training, as well as preserve lean mass when they're in a caloric deficit. So that probably covers, I don't know, 99% of the goals that, of people <laughs> that I work with. So that's where that number came from. But you see, how am I supposed to get all my protein in if I can only digest 30 grams at a time? <laughs> right? How, I mean, okay. Oh, <laughs> so that's obviously a myth, right? That we've now yeah. kind of figured out. Can you can you take us through what, you know, how much you can actually absorb, uh, absorb or digest and kind of just take us through how protein works in the body? I think so. We, we do have a lot of med school listeners to this. I think it'd yeah. be awesome if you could just like explain that to them. Yeah, I'll try. Um... So digestion isn't a 100% perfect process. Um, it's a crude analogy, but I, I like it. It's sort of like a car wash. There's a lot of things going on. There's a, there's a kind of a train track approach to this. It's not going to get every spot off your car. Digestion is not going to break down every single morsel that you had into its molecular components to be absorbed, whether or not that's the amino acids, you know, fatty acids, et cetera. But it's pretty darn good. And your body regulates how fast it moves through this track in part because it wants to get all those nutrients out of it, right? Like it's not going to have things move through so quickly that it won't get the protein out that it needs. And so this is where some of the research that suggests that you can only absorb food at a certain rate, we, ha we have to look at kind of how, how they tested that. And if they tested that with only looking at 30 grams of protein at a time, that that research isn't going to be applicable to when you eat you know, 50 grams of protein at a time, or when you eat a large Thanksgiving meal, like your body's going to slow down that whole process such that we absorb it. So, so yeah, I mean, your, your body will hold this food longer in the stomach, sometimes several hours. So that's it. It releases almost like a slow drip to then your small intestine, um, where most of the nutrients are absorbed. And yeah, I mean, I think some of these rules that I hear about nutrition, um, and I believe them all, you know, like I, I thought they were all true too, but I think what really helps with some of this stuff is you take a step back and you're like, how did humans get to like 2020? If that was the case, <laughs> like, <laughs> like would, would we all be dead if like we only absorbed like this perfect amount of protein? Like mm -hmm. it just, it just seems a little bit gimmicky to me. And I think that kind of taking a step back and being like, wow, we, we've been here for a lot of years and somehow we didn't know this till like 1990. Well, maybe it wasn't actually the right fact, right? Maybe we, we have something wrong about that piece of knowledge. Yeah. I, I love that because I think in some sense we were able to accept that, Hey, you know, we had these periods of fasting and periods of feasting and that's why we should start doing fasting again. Mm. But then, you know, for some reason the, the protein myth 
was much harder to squash. So uh, thank you for, for kind of sharing that. Um, so again, as I mentioned, I, I've been sold on this like, just because I think this is so easy to implement. Um, mm. At least it is for me. I'm sure that you're seeing a lot of folks that, who are still having some, some challenging uh, for trying to eat even 800 grams of fruits and vegetables a day. But, you know, I think easy in order for us to make these changes stick and make substantial change down the road, we're talking 10, 20, 34 years down the road. Um, I, I know that currently... 41% of the American population is obese, right? And and that's expected to be greater than 50% in the next 10 to 15 years, which is terrifying. Um, all three of us here are hoping to, that we can do our part to try to avoid that. Mm-hmm. So I think in order to do that, we have to to start implementing these or get these concepts involved at a young age, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly in children. We know that we all take, hey, if you want a child to, to learn how to play the piano and, and exceptionally well, they need to start when they're really young. Same thing with any other skill. Yet nutrition, we're not teaching these nutritional approaches and science and behind it. So um, is the 800 grand challenge, is that safe to, to kind of help implement with our children? Again, we're not giving any advice to anybody. I think we all understand that, but is right. that something to start teaching them? And how can we incorporate that teaching our kids with this nutrition? Yeah. Um, you know, calorically speaking, kids are eating more than 500 calories. Wow. But really early on. Um, I just really don't like numbers for children, even when they're additive and not restrictive. And even though the 800 gram challenge isn't looking at calories or macronutrients, I I just don't love this idea of like, today you will eat exactly this plan. I think taking a a page out of CrossFit's playbook for kids, um, one of the things that they do is they're like, you have to pair fitness with fun. And I, I think nutrition can kind of be seen the same way. Like it doesn't always have to be ice cream and cake, but like it shouldn't be this sort of drudgery and this routine. It should just be part of the family meals and fruits and veggies should be regular. And that's what should be available. And I, I think that's the way to really approach kids. Now, I have worked with um, pediatricians. They've done it with their children. I've worked with plenty of other people who have done ideas with their children. But I, I think the key is keeping it flexible. Maybe it's observing your child and being like, wow, they literally eat one piece of fruit a day. Let's make it two. Like, that's a great place to start with children. Not like, we're going to write down your numbers and leaderboard you, you know? Um, I think probably by the time they get to high school, something like that would be more appropriate, again, because they're not focusing on calories or macronutrients. And, you know, they're just focusing on the weight and addition. But I really don't like this idea of setting hard numbers. I think setting the basics of healthy meals, healthy eating, what's available, what's snacks, what are our behaviors around food, are way more going to pay off and then sort of setting a number for kids. Love that. Gotcha. No, this makes a lot of sense. I, I agree with Altmash. I think the 800 gram challenge is it's, it's super easy when you kind of, if, if you're someone who likes data, which I think, you know, as a nation, we're getting into a very, we're, we're all data heavy, right? I got a whoop, right. we got Fitbits, we have, right. you know, Apple, Apple watches. Um, so I just think it's such an awesome way, you know, to kind of not complicate the overcomplicated things that we're doing. Um, so I kind of wanted to switch gears here. Instead of talking about the macros, can, can we delve into the micros? So, you know, being on Instagram, I see almost every other post talking now more about like vitamin D, selenium, iron, uh, Himalayan salt, you got to get your micros in. Um, what, how, how, much of a, how much do you think these micros actually play a role? And is it something that we should focus on? Or do you think the macro approach is just good enough? Yeah, I mean, it's going to come back, of course, to that and, right? Like quality and quantity. Like I want both for sure. I, I do think they matter that they're a reason why they're essential. Um, we want them in our diet, but again, I, 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 I don't know, like all this stuff, like, Oh, am I getting my selenium today? Or, Oh, am I getting my magnesium today? It's like, well, just go eat fruits and veggies and on like whole food protein sources. And you're going to get there. Like, you know, some of this re- too much of a reductionist approach, it just gets a little bit silly. Um, 
So, yeah, I, I like people focusing on micronutrients, but not on any single one, but on them from the standpoint of when I eat whole foods, there's a mixture of them. And when I eat a mixture of whole foods, I'm going to accumulate the mixture I need. That's about the level of specificity that I think people need um, for micronutrients. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, would, would you say it's probably worth it to get like these labs for micronutrients? And if you're seeing more than one, maybe two, three that are like, you're kind of low in, then you're kind of getting a global picture of, okay, I need to add more of these like fruits and veggies in, or you like, cause, cause you just said that you don't think maybe one is enough to justify to change everything. Sure. sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, vitamin D is an interesting one because I think there's some issues about uh, the test quality itself. Although that could probably be true with a lot of micronutrients. I'd have to look more specifically at that. Um, Testing is interesting to me. Uh, one of the things that I like to bring up about testing is like, this is true of like, you know, gut microbiome testing. We could do it for micronutrient analysis testing. It's like, okay, what's going to change? Like, great, we get your results back. Guess what I'm going to tell you to do? Eat more fruits and vegetables. Like, sometimes I'm just sort of like, why do I need the test? Like, what is the test? How is that going to change my uh, direction afterwards. Most of the time it doesn't. Now, what's interesting about that is some people are motivated by seeing the test result. So there is some value there. Some people, when they see, oh my gosh, my glucose is through the roof, I need to change. Great. If that's what I get you on board with, with the 800 gram challenge, I'm all for testing. I don't really recommend testing though, because I have a feeling my, my approach afterwards is not going to change partially because I'm also not a doctor, right? Like I'm not looking at labs in any sort of therapeutic way. So like my health recommendations aren't going to change. <laughs> They're going to be eat more fruits and veggies, eat the right quantity, get enough protein, you know, exercise, sleep and all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, but again, like some people like the data. This is why apps are great. This is why Whoop is great. Like I don't necessarily have to love the product. Um, and, and I'm not speaking against any product, but I don't have to like agree with everything about the product to realize that there can be a good outcome. And this is true with any diet out there. This is true with any sort of fitness app out there. Like if it's driving the change, then great, do it. Yeah. You see, that's such a sound point by you. Um, you know, it's, it's so funny. I think for my physician colleagues, we are taught over and over, like, let's just use musculoskeletal medicine example, right? If somebody comes in with knee pain and you do a thorough exam, um, you, you don't order an MRI, you don't do an ultrasound, you don't do imaging if there's nothing that's going to change about your plan. You're imaging the the labs, everything else, the data is supposed to support um, what your ultimate assessment and plan is going to be. And if it doesn't change, then there's really kind of just wasting money, time, unnecessary radiation exposure if, if it's that type of imaging. And so it's very much the same when it comes to micronutrient testing, those types of things. That being said, though, um, yeah, I think checking an A1C and trying to use somebody's A1C of 11, um, it's a little bit different, uh, but also it's, it's less expensive. So I think that as healthcare providers, you know, we have to kind of know, hey, is is the, the cost of this test, you know, the value that I'm going to get from it, is that the benefit going to motivate individuals can be much higher than what the cost is. And I think that that's kind of where your clinical gestalt comes into it. So I do appreciate that. Uh, but speaking of, uh, of physicians, um, I, I want to thank you because you kind of had our back. <laughs> I think nowadays when you look at social media, people are just bashing doctors left and right, uh, saying, oh, big pharma, this and that, and you know, doctors don't know what they're doing and it's a c- conspiracy. Um, and I get it. I, I get why that is. Um, because again, I-, I think a lot of it is a lack of education, right? we aren't taught about nutrition where, I mean, we know that fruits and veggies are good. Our grandma said it, great grandma said it. Um, but that's not what we're learning about medical school. We're learning about medications and the different types of studies and trials and things of that nature. So, um, ultimately what would you want physicians who are listening to this 
this show here to, to take take away and how can you know they start implementing some of these nutritional um, approaches in there to kind of help their patients. Mm. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I I support conventional medicine a hundred percent. I don't know that their physicians are responsible for our nutrition woes. Um, you know, they're they're there to save you. They're there to put in the stopgap. They're there to make sure that you don't die tomorrow. They're not there to live with you every day and make the right choices. <laughs> um, I don't really know that it's their responsibility. I mean, this is what. How are you responsible for any of your daily behaviors? Um, I I think this has to be a multi multi-prong approach to really drive change in our society as a whole. I do think we can be doing better with education, um, you know, in terms of our public school system. I don't know if it's more public service announcements that apparently helped with smoking. Somehow we were able to get that down. Maybe it's more um, federal assistance on fruits and veggies and, and, and maybe there's a sugar tax. I don't know. It, I think there has to be multiple different ways to do this. But like, under our current system, how is a doctor with 15 to 20 minutes going to assess vital labs and make a therapeutic change when I work with people for weeks and we maybe get to, you know, implementing fruits and veggies, right? Like I think we're tasking our doctors with something that their scope is not and nor where their qualifications are, nor do the way we want them to be. Like when I go to my doctor, you know, if I have a kidney problem, I want the guy who's been researching the kidney and looking at kidney labs for like 20 years, right? Like, no, he's not going to know about glycogen storage post-workout and that's okay. So sometimes I think we're just sort of asking too much of them, right? Um, And for some reason, it's another way that we can outsource the blame game. Um, and, and there's got to be some level of personal responsibility. And then, of course, some assistance um, or other programs in, in other ways for other populations as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely appreciate that. I'm the same way. I think that, yeah, if I'm going to go see somebody who's going to be for shoulders, I, I want somebody who's had a couple of thousand uh, shoulders if it's surgery. I mean, I think that we very much take that into account. But at the same time, we also expect that person to know exactly um you know which micronutrients to test if, you, if that's what you're going on on how the a1c should be managed perfectly um but but that being said though i, I do think that there's a foundational level that is very important right because again mm-hmm. um you know if if we get this right the nutritional aspect sleep exercise diet if the, we get those things right a lot of our health woes we don't even have to go to the doctor and that's our goal is darsh and i talk about this is so many physicians we, we say preventative medicine, preventative medicine, um, but we don't practice it. And so I think that we, in order for us to truly practice preventative medicine, this is something that you kind of have to just invest your time if medical school isn't going to teach you. And I think some medical schools are doing a great job. Um, unfortunately, ours didn't. Uh, and, and that's cool, too. Hopefully in the future they will. Uh, but we have to invest the time ourselves uh, to kind of learn this because this is important and it's becoming more and more important. Um, but maybe before we, we move forward, we should maybe talk a, a little bit about the the opportunity cost of poor nutrition. Like why does this even matter, right? I know you did a really awesome podcast on this, but um, you know, for my physician colleagues who, hey, they're like, listen, I'm interested in the shoulder, I'm interested in the kidney and I want to spend my time. That's cool too. But why should we care about, um, you know, why should we look at these meta-analyses for nutrition rather than looking at statins and, you know, other drugs and those types of things and, and study about that stuff? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that we have the ability to spend time on other diseases or other conditions where we don't have the answer yet, right? Um, where diet and nutrition can prevent so much, even not just from, 
you know, a high cholesterol statin, cardiovascular disease risk point of view, but an orthopedic risk as well. Um, and that we're, we would be able to spend all of those resources elsewhere that could have a better payoff to society. Um, and so that's, I think, where I get really motivated because it's like, yeah, we can do this with diet and exercise. Why do we have PhDs like researching, you know, drugs for obesity? It's like, <laughs> let's get their brains on something else. Like, We can use that power somewhere else. We can use all these resources somewhere else. So I think there is an opportunity cost lost. Um, and that's why I would love to see you know, a lot of that money that's being spent there, like going into preventative education or going into subsidies for fruits and vegetables, or I don't, I don't know, I haven't researched into all the solutions or going into sugar tax or like, how do we make these change? How did we make such a dent in smoking? What can we do from a fruit and vegetable perspective? Because I think the payoff is going to be worth it. Um, and so that's really what, what excites me and, and what I would love to see some change in. Yeah, I think that's definitely above all our pay grades <laughs> to try to figure out <laughs> yeah. solutions for that. But, yeah. but we're hopeful, and that's why we're here today. Um, speaking of making changes, uh, I think that for most people, or at least for me selfishly, you want to start with your loved ones, right? I, I tell my wife this. I'm like, you know, what am I doing if, if I can reach maybe 100, 200 people, but I can't get my parents to start eating right or, or my, my siblings and those things? Uh, and it's really funny. Before I became a physician, my uncle always used to say, that I'm a doctor everywhere except my own household because his mom would never listen to, to what he has to say. Uh, and, and I found that to be true. <laughs> you know, my mom, my parents, um, when I would try to communicate with them again, as I mentioned, I was in the fitness industry and I came home and I was like, Oh, we got to get this out of, we got to eat the cage free eggs and we got to go to free range eggs and this, and don't buy this, even though they're four times as uh, more expensive. Um, I imagine when you first got into the nutrition space, uh, you had some of those difficulties, uh, communicating with your parents or some of your loved ones. Um, how do you suggest that people might approach, um, you know, when you're communicating with, with your loved ones, when you know they're doing harm and from a selfish perspective, you want to protect them because you love them. Um, how can you communicate that uh, effectively? I don't know that you can um, besides kind of just living it and doing it and practicing it and being ready for when they want to make change. Um, you know, I, I don't recommend just approaching somebody and being like, let's talk about your nutrition. <laughs> In fact, like I don't ever bring up nutrition unless I'm asked about it. Um, and I think that's from some years learned, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just sort of like the same with everything, like people make change when they want to make change, and they're going to be motivated by certain things. And so you want to be receptive and a good source for that when they're ready. You don't want to cut off that possibility, right? And, and by kind of berating them, and you have to change and do things my way, all of that stuff, I, I can assure you, you're, you're probably cutting off the chance that you're going to be their resource when they're ready. And so I think it's better just to, yeah, you eat fruits and veggies, when you go out, you eat foods, you often make the, the quote, better choice, whatever it is, you maybe bring an option for the family dinner, um, you maintain a healthy lifestyle. And then guess what, when they're ready to make a change, I'll probably like, Oh, what are you doing? And, and that's where you have your window. And, and then then your window to get in and help them make change, uh, hopefully sustainably in small steps. <laughs> yeah, no, right. I, I, as, uh, as Patrick said, you don't jump in with 14 studies, right? That's right. <laughs> right totally. It's like, I don't know. I mean, I get questions all the time. Like, do you have the study to show X? And it's like, yeah, but like, is sending somebody this article really, really the internet email war? Like, are you going to get anywhere with that? Like, no, just, just wait until they're like, Hey, what are you doing for nutrition? And then 
hey, why don't you eat some fruits and veggies? Join this Facebook group or whatever. And that's that can be the the help they need, right? Yeah, absolutely. For me, like, you know, changing my parents' behavior, I actually sent them a book that was related to South Asians, right? You know, it, it was, I feel, I feel like you got to get a little personal, uh, meet them halfway. But again, it's going to come down to that self-realization for that individual. Um, but speaking about, so I'm very much obsessed with like clients and patient psyche, right? How do we instill change? And obviously that's, that's very tough to do in 15 minutes. And my wife uh, does or organizational um, change uh, for, for big companies. Um, so you know, from her perspective, it takes time, just like you said, are there any other skills that, you know, you think are needed? Is it compassion? Is it empathy? Is it understanding health coaching, habit coaching? What are those other things that you're using other than just a very good base of the field of eating healthy? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's just kind of the experience of coaching, you know, in that intrapersonal relationships where you kind of can read, does this person need more empathy right now? Does this person need a little bit more tough love? Do they need to be called out a little bit here? You kind of can get a sense of that based in their conversation and what they're saying. Um, a lot of times it will become obvious how they're talking um, and how they're saying things. A lot of times people will end up identifying it themselves. You know, I remember talking to some woman about the 800 gram challenge and, oh, it's too much food and I'm not losing weight. And she keeps talking and I really like wine and cheese. And then I just sort of smile. Hey, you already identified the problem, right? It's the wine and cheese, right? Or sometimes people will be really self-deprecating and they're really beating themselves up. That would be more of the empathy approach. And of course, depending on the severity, it may or may not be my scope. Um, but yeah, you just kind of let them talk and listen. And, and that, I guess, comes just with time and experience of working with people and coaching change. But there's going to be kind of a different approach of being like, hey, this is easy. You can do this. We're just adding fruits and veggies. Or, or it might be something more of like, hey, let's just cut out the soda today. And that's just going to depend, again, on kind of the person and how they're kind of vocalizing their struggles. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I mean, I, I love that. And I think that uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed, I, again, so many things that you post that I enjoy, but your, your 10 principles, I'm not sure when you came up with those. And, um, um, I mean, there's something really good. We're going to link to that. And I, I want to specifically ask you, uh, about, um, or I guess there are no particular order, right? They're not an order of importance is how you wrote them. Um, yeah, but one of them was about your diet cannot be validated, right? I think that so, so many times, again, when you're in a position of authority, such as you are as a nutritionist, as, as a, as a coach, such as we are and physicians, people will come to us and say, Hey, this is what I'm eating. Is this good? Or is this bad to eat? Right. You always get those questions. And especially for my physician colleagues, um, you're going to be, again, my parents aside who don't respect me as a physician. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> but most of the patients will come in and, and, and they'll ask you, Hey, look, is this the right thing that I'm doing for my health for X, Y, and Z goal? Um, it, pretending that we do have the time to have that discussion. And for those who are interested in having the discussion, I think it's really worthwhile mentioning that, hey, we as physicians, we also cannot validate their diet, right? As a coach, are you validating their diet? I mean, can you just talk a little bit more about how you approach that when they're looking for validation? Because we all want to be loved. We all want validation. Mm -hmm. um, how, how do you handle that situation? And then what would you also advise maybe young coaches, nutritionists, physicians to, to kind of handle that situation? Yeah, um, I think you can comfort them in they're on the right path, right? Like you can say like, yeah, that looks great to me. Do I know that's going to prevent the heart attack at 50? No, no one does. Um, and so it's kind of a balance of, hey, giving them the support that based on what we know, this is a great strategy 
nothing is a guarantee. There's too many unknowns um, to be able to do that. And in fact, I think you should walk away from somebody who tells you that. Some of the most intelligent people that I've listened to or worked with, they are very clear when they don't know. And you only earn their respect because of that. And, and, and I think it's, we see it a lot in nutrition. It's like, well, this person says this is the one thing. And I'm like, that should make you walk away. <laughs> Like as much as I love the 800 gram challenge, like people are successful with plenty of other diets and that's good for them, right? Like this is my approach because I think I can get more people on board this way than I have with other strategies. But I also recognize that it's not perfect. And if you're working with somebody who doesn't have that realization, then I would suggest that they they probably um, aren't that experienced if I'm being perfectly honest. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I again, I, I can't overemphasize um uh, again, uh, it's never one thing is, is one of your principles from what I recall. Uh, and, and they're also so really uh, good, especially when you're looking at, I think everything that we've touched on today is, is kind of in there. Um, but I think you also mentioned that you're, have you changed them at all since, because in one of your podcasts, you mentioned that you're willing to kind of adapt as, as you learn more. Has any of those changed? Yeah, I haven't. I, I've thought about, um, reframing number 10, there are diminishing returns on attaining perfection um, from a different, from a few different standpoints that I don't think are really worth going into here. I think the overall concept is still there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I wanted to kind of hammer on it is one, they aren't in, in any order, as you kind of hinted at before, they were in that order more for teaching purposes than order of importance. They're more sort of equally important. But the thing that I really want to drive home to people about them is there's not a single food choice listed in them that I would like to teach nutrition or help people understand nutrition without telling them what to eat. <laughs> and, and I think that's where we get a lot of confusion. It's like when you go to the carnivore people, they're telling you to only eat meat. And then you go to the plant-based people and you only eat plants. And now how, how is it the case that people can both, that on both diets, people can lose weight and improve their health? Well, they're probably changing their quality and their quantity, right? So let's focus less on the food choices and less on all these specifics and understand the concepts below them. And so that was sort of what I wanted to do with the principles is like, and that's how to kind of remove the dogma is like, no, I don't want to force you into a food choice. I want you to understand how your food choices align with these ideas. Yeah, I love that. I think that, uh, you know, I've, I've said to Darsha a couple of times that when you've been doing this long enough and you listen to experts such as yourself, you know, John Berardi, like all these folks, um, you tend to see a lot more similarities than differences, at least the ones who are really getting it right. And and that's what what I like to focus on rather than, okay, what are they saying that kind of, because there's going to be some subtle differences, but but that's not where probably the, the true answer is, right? The true answer is somewhere in the middle. Uh, and it's probably what they do agree on. Um, but uh, to, to your point about the d diminishing returns for attaining perfection, I think there's th this really awesome infographic by Precision Nutrition. It's called The Cost of Getting Lean. I'm sure you've seen it. Um, we're going to post it in here. I think that's really worth uh, people's time to kind of take a look at, you know, what it really takes to going from, if we're looking at body fat for just physique purposes, to go from like 15%, 10% and down even further. Um, I, I just, that's something, I think it's probably their most downloaded uh, infographic, if, if I remember correctly. So we'll, we'll link to that. Um, but you see, let's just say that people listen to this um, and they're convinced they like the 800 gram challenge. They're like, oh, there's a lot of freedom here. This is sustainable. As you say, I can do this for a long time. Um, but, uh, you know, we got some overachievers who are ready to graduate from this. And they were like, oh, well, what do I do next? Do you go to a thousand grams? Do you add more variety? I remember Kelly Starrett saying that he does the eight by eight. Uh, do, you, do you do that? Uh, what, what do you do next? 
can you graduate from yeah, the, ger- <laughs> the German volume training of uh, exactly. <laughs> the 800 gram challenge? Um, <laughs> yeah, you can go over 800 grams, but I, I purposely set it such that it wasn't this more is better phenomenon. I, I think that's something that's true. I don't know if it's American psyche. I don't know if, it, if it's, you know, just people psyche. <laughs> it's just sort of like this more, 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 more. And I wanted to get away from that. Um, I think, quote, graduating from the 800 gram challenge, although I don't really think it ever goes away, would be to then add protein, as we discussed, and then potentially also do macros. Um, And that's to weigh and measure every single thing that you're eating. And I don't recommend it because I love it. (laughs) In fact, I don't love it. But I think you're going to get really clear about your diet and why you don't have the goals. When you do that, when you analyze the diet, comprehensively from a caloric perspective while hitting some quality control points, you're going to be like, oh, that's why I'm not as lean as I want to be. And oh, that's how much work it takes to get those six pack abs. And then you decide whether or not you want to pay to play if you want to have some uh, skin in the game for that. Um, And so that would be sort of the progression. And then ultimately, I want there to like the progression quote to be done. You know, maybe after macros, you learn what to do, maybe you reach your goals, then you figure out, okay, what can I do forever? That's the least amount of work. Like I actually want nutrition to stop being this, I need to keep doing the next new thing. Because I, I think there is a certain point at which we've reached the level where we're going to have the biggest payoff where we can reach 120 years old or whatever it is for the, the longevity crew. Um, and that you don't need to keep constantly twink- tweaking and tinkering and that uh, nutrition can be done for you. Like you can just sort of keep living some really basic practices and then go take the time to do other things that I think will have lo- better payoff to your longevity or, or whatever it is. I, I see real quick though. Um, I, I, not everybody loves measuring on a scale. I think for some people might find that intimidating. I know in my own household, I love it, but you know, my better half doesn't. Um, how would they go about doing it though? Yeah. So of course, for the 800 gram challenge, they can use kind of the cup system where your closed fist is about a cup and about six of those per day add up to about 800 grams, not leafy greens, just add those in. Yeah, they count, but they don't weigh much. So just go for kind of six fistfuls and you're going to be pretty close plus some leafy greens. For protein, they can kind of do a palm size, you know, the thickness, the size of your palm um, at each of the main meals. For a lot of people, that's going to be pretty close. Um, but then beyond that, we do have to weigh and measure. And this is where like, you have to decide what outcome do I want? And and this is the work that's required. It's sort of like saying, you know, I want a five minute mile, but I don't want to go running. And it's like, all right, well, <laughs> we're not going to get Good there. Luck. Like I want the six pack abs. I can't lean out. What do I have to do? It's like, you have to do macros. And they're like, I don't want to do that. It's like, okay, well, you don't want the six pack abs. I mean, it's that simple. So there is some level of like, okay, you have to decide, how much work you're willing to put in for the goal that you say that you want. As soon as you say that, I don't want to do that. That's fine. But you may have capped yourself relative to the goal that you've kind of set. But yeah, those, those, those hand measurements can be pretty effective. I would say for like 80 to 90% of the population. Yeah. Gotcha. That's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. Um, you know, I just really want to highlight the one thing you said is you want to be able to teach without telling people what to eat. I, I I absolutely love that. Um, I think it just (laughs) encapsulates so many things that, you know, as, as providers, as me and Ultimash do, it's, it's, it's kind of the same concept, but it, it takes a while to, 
you know, be in that healthy state to be consistently doing this 800 gram challenge for maybe a year, two, three years before getting ahead of ourselves and going to the next thing. And then at one point saying, you know what, I'm good. I, that, I don't have to wake up and think about the next thing I'm going to eat. This is it. I, it's, it's part of my life. But as we know, we have research coming through the fire hydrant, right? It's, it's coming at us with so many different things. Some things are just not, you know, great research. A lot of things are great as well. How do we navigate that as well, right? How do we kind of, do we kind of turn our head away from those once we figure out what works for us? Or is it important for us to also kind of look at the data that's upcoming? Yeah, I actually think the data is coming at a slower pace than um, the articles that are published. Like a lot of articles that are published are opinions and and reanalyses. And when you get down to clinical studies with humans, that's the next key part. Um, there tends to be not a ton of studies. This is true for fasting. Um, and especially once you start looking at randomized controlled trials. And that certainly doesn't mean that we can't learn things from other studies. But I'm continually surprised when I try to go and find a topic on humans with clinically controlled trials. There's not a lot. Even that research about absorption, about protein absorption, I keep what I could find is that it goes back to the same article from 2006 in one study. And it's like, wow, we're just reciting the same article, the same article. So I think it's not not pay attention to it, but it's to make sure that we're really paying attention to new data, not necessarily new opinions. Because <laughs> those come out of the fire hose quite rapidly. I don't think the data is changing. I think what people's opinion about the data is changing. That's a, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. And you see, I think, I think that's a really important topic right there. Right. I think especially we know that when it comes to nutrition, really anything uh, we've harped upon the fact that, that you have to account for biological variation and at the individual level, and especially with nutrition, right. For some people, more fat works better for other people, more carb works better for some people, you know, eating, uh, fasting works. So there's so many different variations to it. But I think as clinicians and as scientists, we do need that evidence to support our practice to some degree. Otherwise, there's no standardization, right? And I think that unfortunately, in somewhat of a litigious society um, that we live in, you know, you kind of need something to hang your hat on. Um, and Darsh and I have spoken about this. Hey, what does evidence-based medicine mean now versus what it used to? And I think we're coming along with redefining that term, and we've perhaps used the term evidence-informed medicine is better, especially when it comes to these types of things, nutrition, exercise, those types of things. Um, but uh, like, for instance, what we know is, uh, for those who don't know, the gold standard for nutritional studies are these metabolic ward studies, where you basically admit patients on an inpatient setting, you get to control what they eat, you know, what get to moderate what they eat. Um, that's much harder to do. And even some of the papers that we talked about that, that uh, journal epidemiology paper, that the meta-analysis mentions that most of them are association studies, right? Even though their sample size is astronomical. And so a lot of these are association studies, uh, but so when we have physicians and even myself, when I'm trying to implement this into practice, um, how am I supposed to do that? Uh, you know, maybe not necessarily over statins or other medications or so like, how do we balance that? How do we balance that art and science side of it? Yeah, I don't know. I think your job is tougher than mine. <laughs> I don't know about but, that. Um, yeah, it's just, I think it's, I think it's sort of the same thing as like with experience, you see enough trends that you're able to, you're able to kind of make those recommendations and you, you know, like 
you're able to see, I don't want to say where the truths are, because it makes it sound like there's one answer. But again, these principal ideas, it's like, yeah, if you're exercising, and you're, and you're holding, you know, uh, correct positions, when you're working out, you're less likely to um, have injury. It's the same thing. If you're eating more fruits and veggies, and you're not eating too many calories, yeah, you're less likely to have a cardiovascular disease. Um, and then that's what you hang your hat on. You're not you're not guaranteeing anything. You're not necessarily the next new different idea. You're, you're continuing to say, say the ideas that are useful. Um, and I think that's where I've sort of hang my hat, hung my hat. What's the, what's the word there? But it's like, I, I think my message is contrarian only because it's so vanilla, right? Like I think there's this idea that my message has to be so different and so unique when I think it's like, well, no, your message can be what works. And that might just be continuing the message of people that were smarter before me, right? Um, and so I think that's it. You hang your hat on where there's trends and combine with your own experience of what works. And I think that's a great place to be. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I, I think that that's... That's a, probably a, a good place for us to kind of come to a close. I, we want to be respectful of your time because you've been so generous with it. Uh, but before we let you go, EC, I want to ask you a somewhat silly question because uh, you'll say this guy's learned nothing in the uh -huh. last hour. Um, <laughs> no, it, you know, in your consistency project, um, uh, a tracker, you, you mentioned four things, right? We're looking at quality, quantity, um, sleep and exercise, right? Uh, for most people though, do you think that, or which one do you think tends to be the biggest lever that drives optimal health is again, is there one? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course I love that word and right. But, um, typically what I would suggest for people is you're probably going to see the biggest shift with the one that you perform the worst at, right? Like, if you already have really high quality diet, if you've been paleo perfect for five years or whatever like that, you're probably going to try the 800 gram challenge and be like, that was easy, right? <laughs> but if you're coming from a standard American diet, you're gonna be like, oh my God, the 800 gram challenge is the, so amazing, right? Same thing like with me, I, I've been trying to post every day and I'm going to continue for the year or whatever like that. And it's like, guess what is my weakest link? Sleep, right? And so guess what? I typically feel the difference when I sleep more. It's like, I am so consistent on the 800 gram challenge that I don't think I noticed these massive changes from it. Um, and so that's what I would try to have people focus. Like you need all of these things, but where you're going to see the next quote best improvement is when you pull up that weakest link. I love that. And I see that when you're posting, you're typically writing it down the good old pen and paper model and doing you know, addition that way. Is that how you track it? Or do you track it on MyFitnessPal as well or something else? Yeah, when I'm doing macros to kind of prove points about um, calories, or when I'm doing macros, just to make sure I'm assessing my own diet, I do use my fitness pal. But when I'm doing the 800 gram challenge or lazy macros for most days, I um, just use pen and paper. And this actually was a point I was at a meetup, uh, like a fitness tech group meetup um, back in Colorado. And we were talking about apps. And of course, you know, fit tech is so big and health tech is so big. And, and one of the points that this guy made, and I just loved it, and I, I think about it all the time is like, the app has to beat pen and paper. And for me, right now, there's not something that beats pen and paper in terms of the 800 gram challenge. I'm sitting at my desk most days, I just write it down next to me. Some people would rather do it on their phone, whatever. But that's how simple it has to be. If I have to go in there and like log all of the things, and it's a pain to log, like, is it more efficient than me just doing the pen and paper? And the other thing that I want to point out, and this is where we kind of comes back full circle to our conversation is like, I don't need to know that I ate 
167 grams of raspberry last Tuesday. Like, what am I going to do with that data? Like, I mean, I guess some people love it. They want to do the micronutrient analysis. That's fine. I just don't see all this retrospective on like all of my past habits. I just need something that I continue to do to make sure that I actually ate the fruits and veggies. And so sometimes I think there's this paralysis of like all this data. And it's like, well, what are we using the data for? If the app is driving the habit change, if you're logging and that's actually making you eat the fruits and veggies, great. But do I need to know about my cucumber consumption? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And so, so far, pen and paper is, is where I've fallen. No, I, li- I like that a lot. You know, even for me, you know, starting, you know, I was using a tractor before and then kind of got away from it because you you, you got to have a barcode. And sometimes these veggies and fruits, you can't find a barcode, right? Especially if you're getting organic or whatever from a local farmer's market. Mm-hmm. And I that should not deter anyone from doing it, right? Because technology doesn't work. So using that pen and paper, you know, I, I love that idea. I think that's what I'm going to start doing or either notes on my phone. Um, right. Yeah. Ultimash, any, any see, other questions? Yeah, yeah. yeah no, well, I wanted to ask, and we're talking, we're closing up with tracking. So EC, can you just talk about what the, the free tracker that you have on the consistency project, what that's about? And can people, can anybody join that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's at consistency.optimizemenutrition.com. And you literally just say yes or no on the 800 gram challenge, your protein target exercise and sleep every day. There's a leaderboard that kind of refreshes every week, although the records are stored forever. Um, and, and that's sort of the level that I think people need each day. Like, I don't know, again, that we need to log like our warm up of every workout. Um, and so I made it free just for everyone with this idea of being like, hey, what does consistency look like? Like, I, that's why I want to make sure I log for a year is like, what's a good score? I actually think averaging because you get a point for each. I think averaging above two, you're going to find a pretty healthy individual. That means that they're probably doing you know, the 800 gram challenge and exercise every single day of the year, I'm going to tell you that's going to be a pretty healthy person, right? Um, And so that was just sort of it, like, is there a way that we can create community engagement around some really simple practices? Um, And so people are welcome to join. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to link to that. So, uh, so people can kind of, you know, have that level of kind of accountability. Although I know that at some point, you guys talked about, you know, kind of intrinsic accountability versus extrinsic, but this is a, a form of extrinsic accountability. Um, Darsh, any, anything that you else you want to ask for? No, I just want, I'm, I'm good. I just want to say thank you so much, EC, for coming on. You know, I've been sharing your podcast once I felt, you know, once I came upon it to everyone that I know, especially my loved ones. Um, you just have this amazing, amazing way of taking such a complex polarizing, uh, field in nutrition. And what I like it, it, the, the word that comes to my mind is Zen. You just have a Zen way of kind of just explaining these things that make it very easy to follow along. Um, and so I really appreciate you for doing everything that you're doing. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, and I kind of want to co-sign on that, AC. I think that, um, you know, it is very challenging. Darsh and I talk about, hey, look, as physicians, we're scientists and there's also the art of medicine and there's the science of medicine. And I think that you are one of the few people who are doing a beautiful job as finding the balance between both and then also being able to shift when it's appropriate. So I think that's such a, a valuable skill that people can learn from. Um, and I also want to plug your podcast here, the Consistency Project podcast. I think that that's awesome. A lot of great content in that. And, you know, if nothing else, your analogies are amazing that people can hopefully borrow from you. And use my personal favorites one are the the ones that are related to personal finance. I think those who know me that I'm I'm, uh, I'm very interested in that kind of stuff. So when you use them by investing and budgeting, um, that kind of uh, strikes home with me. So thank you for everything that you're doing. Um, I mean, where can people find you on social media? We said the Consistency Project, uh, your podcast. You mentioned your website. Where else can people find you? 
Yeah, it's pretty easy. OptimizeMeNutrition.com. That's the same handle, Optimize Me Nutrition on the social medias and then the consistency project. So you've nailed them all. Awesome. Well, thank you again, C. You see. Thank, thank you. you guys. Such a great show with E.C. Sinkowski. Before we end, be sure to use your 15% off code for On Time MD by Dr. Philip Boucher to gain control of your life, your focus, and your time. Reach out at drpodcastnetwork.com slash ontimemd and use code 2021 at checkout. Now for the key disclaimer. Please remember that everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nor should it be construed as medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. If you enjoy the content of this show, please be sure to subscribe and share with someone else who also may benefit from the show. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time.